Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today, I'm speaking with Dr. Claire Sandberg. She is an anesthesiologist and a yoga teacher, so that's a really interesting balance. And we are talking everything about epidurals. She just breaks things down very matter-of-fact, and we're talking about the difference between standard epidurals and walking epidurals, and are you really walking with a walking epidural? She goes over the risks versus the benefits. There's such common place to get an epidural that often Sometimes people don't know what might happen and even how often these things may happen or may not happen. So I hope you enjoy that. She really lays out the information so nicely. Also, by the time this is released, this should be our 99th podcast, which just amazes me that we've gotten this far and that it's just been so enjoyable doing this. So to help people find Yoga Birth Babies, please take a moment to go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review what you're listening to. It'll just help the community continue continue to spread. And with that, I also want to thank you for listening and for being part of our community. All right. I hope you enjoy. Take care. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, Claire. I am so excited to speak to you. How are you? I'm great. Nice to speak to you too, Deb. Oh, good. So, all right, people out there, let me do a little full disclosure. So Claire Sandberg, Dr. Claire Sandberg is actually, um, not only is she, you know, a doctor, but she was part of our teacher training. So if you hear us kind of chatting like old friends, that's because we are. Um, she's an amazing <laughs> yoga teacher and she's also an anesthesiologist, which I have to admit when I first heard that you were going to be part of the teacher training as an anesthesiologist, I was thinking like, well, what direction is she going to come from? Because I've had interactions with some anesthesiologists in while I was a doula and some are very like, Hey, we'll kind of do whatever, whatever the mom wants. And then others that when a client said they want to think about it or declines anesthesia, it gets a little, little touchy. So it made me a little nervous before I met you. Yeah, sure. That's interesting. It's just kind of the same in my life. People always say to me, oh, you're an anesthesiologist. Did you like have the full anesthesiology works for your birth? And I was like, well, no, that's, that wasn't what I wanted to choose for myself. So, yeah, so people yeah. probably have a preconceived idea of your mm-hmm. perspective on medicine. Mm-hmm. I certainly did. So, all right, so let's, mm. <laughs> so just kind of br- jump into, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself and your path to anesthesiology and, and then yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I um, I started my, well, I did my medical training in the UK and I went into anesthesiology mainly because I was kind of attracted to the really diverse roles that an anesthesiologist has in a hospital and also had great role models when I was in my training and I think that always attracts you into your specialty of choice. So I set off doing that and I was really enjoying it and as part of that I worked um on the labor and delivery 
um, floor. So putting in epidurals and um, taking ladies to the OR for C-section, um, helping with ladies who were high dependency, um, you know, who were, so, who were very sick during their pregnancies. So all those kinds of things. Um, and then another part of my work at that time was that I was in the Royal Air Force, so I was in the military. And so as part of that, I did um, critical care aeromedical evacuation all over the world, which was amazing. And so as often happens, if you're in the military, you meet somebody else who's in the military. So my husband um, is also serving. And right about when I was about three quarters of the way through my residency, he was offered a an exchange post to the U.S., which was, you know, a, really a fantastic opportunity for him. And I had not long had my first son, and I was really looking for a chance to take a break and have an opportunity to be home with him more. So we decided to go for it, and I was going to take my career break. Um, just for the short period of time that he would be here on his exchange. And um, we came over to the US and I kind of, I became a little bit more engaged with yoga. I feel like it's just everywhere in the States. And Is it not um, in the UK? No, no, like nothing. I, well, where, we were living in Virginia Beach and and certainly where we are right now, I feel like every... I don't know, like every street, there's like two or three <laughs> yoga studios, right? You can't avoid it. Um, so I kind of engaged with my practice a little bit um, in that way. But it wasn't really until I was pregnant for the second time that I really kind of stepped it up. And I did. I couldn't really find somewhere that had a, po- a prenatal program that really kind of connected with me. So I did most of my prenatal yoga just at home for myself. But then postnatally, I went to a mommy and me class, which for some people they're probably thinking mommy and me like would not be your natural kind of draw into teaching yoga. But it was just, for me, it was so powerful at that time in my life, that kind of opportunity to reconnect with mindfulness and bring that to my parenting, rehabilitating my body in a place where everything was about being non-judgmental. And I was just so struck by how incredible it was for me at that time that I was just thought, I have to share this. I have to learn how to do this. So I actually set off to do my teacher training in yoga with the sole intention of teaching postnatal yoga. And um, anybody who's taken yoga teacher training, so for your listeners who are teachers, um, you know, clearly you set, you maybe set off with one intention and then kind of the door is open during um, yoga teacher training. So I came out the other side and all the kind of stars aligned in the studio where I took the training and there was an opportunity for me to teach prenatal yoga, which then led on to me teaching postnatal yoga. And that's where we are today. So I'm teaching my yoga. I'm still home with my youngest and yeah, we're just kind of waiting to find out what's going to happen next with my husband for those military families. It's just that place we're always in where we're just waiting to know where we'll go next. Do you think you might go back to the UK? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you pick up where you left off in your medical career? Yeah. So that's really interesting. So the yoga, the, the yoga that kind of really getting involved with yoga has opened my eyes a lot to the mind body connection and anesthesia. I loved my anesthesiology career but I think I would be so interested to do something where I could bring more mind-body connections, so maybe family medicine or something like that. I'd have to go back a lot and then retrain, but, that, you know, that's okay. 
<laughs> That's fascinating to me. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into a little bit about the anesthesia. So epidurals, that's what we're going to kind of break down today. It is such a hot topic, I think, and, and misunderstood. Um, yeah. You know, we, we can also talk about like just when people get medication, because you've heard me teach. I'm always reminding people that it's a very valid choice to have an epidural, but I think it's misunderstood of how it's given, when it's given, the power of it. You know, I often tell my students, I'm like, don't just have that one tool because you don't get it as soon as you walk through the doors of the hospital and you should see some eyes. People are like, Mm -hmm. what? You know, because if all you've trained your mind is, I'm going to feel like the epidural, while it's a very valid and good choice for many, it's, I think the whole picture of it and the pros and cons and the risk versus benefits, I think it's a little vague. So yeah. And I think it's just become so commonplace as well, hasn't it? So well, I think it's well over 60% of women in the U.S. are, t- are you know, are taking an epidural or, or, or having a spinal block of some kind. So with that, with that sense of commonplaceness, people think, oh, well, you know, everyone's doing it. So must be fine. Yeah. So let's break down a little bit. because also with epidural, people don't realize there's two types. So there's the mm-hmm. standard. And I put in quotes walking because I've never seen anyone actually walking. Yeah. And I, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. So yeah, let's jump into that. What are the differences between the standard epidural and the walking epidural and also how they're given? Okay. So I'm going to run you through the, how an epidural, how, what's going to happen if you have an epidural? Does that seem good? Yes. So first of all, um, when you ask your epidural, you've just touched on this a little bit, whoever's coming to do that epidural may not be able to come straight away. So that importance of having some things in your kind of toolbox of, you know, ways of coping with the sensations that you're having during your labor is really important because it may not just, you know, the anesthesiologist may not just be able to appear. Yeah. And then the first thing is going to be that you want that person to explain what they're doing. So you may feel like you're very uncomfortable and you just want them to get on and do it. But it's kind of important. This is one of the reasons why it's important to get some information beforehand. Um, But I'm hoping that whoever is coming to do the epidural is going to discuss with you and take your consent to do the procedure. And then there's going to be position. So you're either going to sit on the bed. And if you imagine the lower part of your back, you want to make your body as so that the bottom half of your back is as open as it can be. So you're sort of curled around your bump in the front and you're going to need to stay still like that. The other option is to lie on your side in that curled up position. And then the anesthesiologist would paint your back with some antiseptic, um, fluid and place a drape over your back as well. So that is all going to be going on. And then very often the anesthesiologist will tell you that you're going to feel something like a bee sting, which is the local anesthetic going in. So that, you know, that stings. Many people have had local anesthetic, you know what that feels like. Um, And then that area is going to feel numb. And then the actual equipment to put an epidural in is a needle that's hollow And so the needle that's hollow goes into the back through the bones um, at the back and then into the space outside of the spinal space where the fluid is. So the fluid that bathes the spinal cord and the brain is cerebrospinal fluid. So we're not going into that fluid space. We're going outside of it. And then once the hollow needle is in place, 
then a very thin tube or what we would call a catheter gets threaded in through the hollow needle and then that whole needle gets taken off. So the only thing that's left in your epidural space is that very thin plastic catheter. And then into that catheter goes the medicine which creates the epidural block. So there's two types of medicine that are commonly used. One is a local anesthetic and that's going to numb the nerves that are supplying the uterus and the cervix so that's going to numb the feeling of the sensations but it's also going to numb the sensation from the lower half of the body so the sensation to the legs um, and up to around the belly button Um, and the other medication that's put in is an opioid or a narcotic Um, and so commonly that would be something like fentanyl Um, And the idea of using that is it means that we can use maybe a little less of the local anesthetic that which creates the numbness, but still get pain relief. And so there's evidence that shows that using a combination of those two things gives you better, um, gives you a better result with your epidural. And that's the standard or is that the walking? That's the stat. So that's the, that's a standard epidural. Yeah, that's how you would stand. So a walking epidural, um, there's basically two ways of looking at walking epidural, and I feel like really it is a big old misnomer. Well, exactly it's a combined, as you say. Isn't it kind of like the combined yeah. spinal yeah. epidural? So there's, a combined, yeah. so there's two ways of doing a walking epidural. One is to really reduce what is in what I've just described to you. So really reduce the concentration of that local anesthetic, so that numbing medication. So in some units, they'll do that. They'll give a very dilute um, concentration. Now, it's always the the risk with that is the more dilute you make it you may have good movement but you may then not have as good um, coverage in terms of pain control so the other way of doing what would be classically termed a walking epidural would be to do a combined spinal epidural so that's a cse and we just talked about how the epidural is outside of that spinal bag of fluid so in a combined spinal epidural the anesthesiologist is going to put a really thin needle into that spinal fluid and put some medication in around the spinal fluid. So that medication is going to get to the spinal cord and the nerves coming out of the spinal cord much, much more quickly. So that's going to be a super quick onset. And you can also use very little or no local anesthetic with that. So you could get a very quick onset block that has, we call it a block with the, when you put the medications in the back, um, that um, will last for a period of time. And then at the same time, in this kind of two-step procedure, the anesthesiologist is going to place the epidural catheter, but is not going to put anything in it. So the idea being that you would have more movement and that the epidural is there to put some medication in it if the spinal doesn't last long enough. The thing about this is that exactly as you say, there are very few units where once you've had any kind of anesthesia like this or analgesia like this in the back they're actually going to let you get up and walk around because you are at risk of falling because you're not going to be as steady on your feet yeah and I wanted to talk a little bit about all of the other things that are going to be attached to you I want your listeners to have a real understanding of the reality of once you have this set up the mobility that you know it's going to be difficult to be mobile so You're going to have a bag of fluid probably attached to the epidural catheter. 
um, and the epidural is going to be taped, the, the thin tube is going to be taped over your shoulder. Um, before you had the epidural put in, you would have had an IV line put in for, and very likely that you'll be connected to an IV infusion of fluid. So that's going to be hanging on a pole as well. Um, very often once you have the epidural going, you're not going to have the sensation to use your bladder. So you may have a urinary catheter attached. You're most definitely going to have a blood pressure cuff attached to you and um, an oxygen probe on your finger. So I hope you're getting an idea of the number of wires <laughs> that are kind of um, that are attached to the person who, who has the epidural. So in terms of, I, I just want to kind of dispel the idea that you would have the epidural and you would literally be able to freely walk around your room or pace the corridors of the hospital. You know, you would always need to be supported. And the fetal monitors. Um, yeah, and the fetal monitor. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, which is another, you know, another huge big deal. And, and the, the cables on that are short. So there are some units that have telemetry so that you would not necessarily need to be connected to the to the fetal monitor machine but nevertheless um, in most places I think you would be connected to wires our family has grown welcome to the world Hannah baby introducing a new collection Hannah soft made with tencel it's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments and it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. In a lot of mm -hmm. the New York hospitals, the little, I don't even know, I'm making this like try, this rectangular shape with my hands, but like the mm -hmm. box in which the epidural, epidural is it? mm -hmm. attached to the wall behind the bed okay yeah some mm -hmm. sometimes i've seen it on a it's pole, on the, pole. You know, on yeah. the iv pole with the bag of fluid um but sometimes it's on the wall so yeah, there's sometimes there's that may be no to do with up. yeah i don't know if that's to do with the um it may be to do with the narcotics being in the bag and so they want it connected to something that can't be taken i don't know oh, maybe that's yeah, the thing or maybe that. it's just the mechanics of how they have the room set up but yeah, yeah so, so you're not walking around <laughs> Yeah, but it is important to say that if you were interested in having an epidural where you had more mobility than maybe with a standard epidural, um, then with assistance, you know, th there is a possibility that certainly you could um, certainly you could come onto your side even with a st standard epidural, um, and so you should and you could and really you should try to move as be moved as much as you can from your side to side but there's some people that are able to come into an all fours position maybe on the bed um but again um you there's going to have to have been a very specific intention to try and create an epidural that can give you that kind of movement because for most people they're not going to have um, that mobility. So a conversation with the care provider about intentions beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I important. Think I think finding out and saying, you know, if they say, oh, yeah, we do walking epidurals, saying, okay, can you tell me in the last 10 women who requested a walking epidural, how many of them were actually able to walk? Do you mean walking or do you mean Just slightly movement? mobile. Yeah. 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 Because I, I just, it, it, it feels like a real misnomer to yeah, me. Yeah. And I've heard students say, you know, well, I'm, I, I am going to get pain medication. I'm going to have the walking epidural, so I'm going to get the best of both worlds. And I never yeah. want to burst their bubble. You know, I do tell them like, you'll definitely have more movement. It's less numb and maybe get on all fours, maybe even the squatting bar on the bed. Yeah. But 
You know, mm-hmm. I hate to I hate to remind you, you're probably not going to walk around. Can you talk a little bit about the difference? So you talked about the difference drugs and the different placement. Mm-hmm. Are there any more challenges or or something someone should be aware with the walking epidural compared to the standard? Um, is it more difficult to put in? Is are there more risks of like epidural headache or anything with with either of them? Yeah. So the the CSE requires slightly more um, skill, I would say. But in a unit where they're regularly, people are always best at what they do regularly, right? Mm-hmm. Or what they do the most. So in a unit where people are commonly doing that, I, I don't think that there would be a big difference between um, between the risks. Now, because you're when you put a standard epidural in, your intention is not at all to breach that spinal fluid. When you put a CS in, you very intentionally are breaching the spinal fluid. So the risk of spinal headache naturally is going to be slightly higher, but it's it's very marginal. There's no, um, there's no, uh, what's the word? There's no kind of hard and fast rule, like definitely going to be more likely that you would get a spinal headache. No, with that's a good because I've had students yeah. come back and be like, oh my God, I could barely lift my head. I definitely want to get to the pros and cons yeah, of the risk. Yeah, I want to talk about that but too because that's a big we, deal. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. Before we get to that, can we talk just a little bit about something you brought up in class? I've seen as a doula, the idea that not all epidurals are going to fully give full pain relief and then what happens when that's done Uh, okay so right right now the um the numbers that are are quoted are between one in eight and one in ten epidurals don't give full pain relief um and that's important to understand that there might be this time period where um, the anesthesiologist is trying to set your pain relief up so that it is full and complete. So there's going to be um, a couple of situations. First is the epidural doesn't work at all, which means that it's not in the right place. And in that instance, the anesthesiologist is going to need to take it out and put it back in again in a different spinal space in the back. Um, that 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 happens less commonly. And then the next one is that you have a kind of a patchy epidural. So maybe you have a patch where it isn't, where you feel like you still have some sensation or the epidural feels very one-sided. So you feel like you have good pain relief on one side, but not on the other side. So when that happens, you're going to be, you know, in good communication with the anesthesiologist, they're going to be asking you lots of questions about what you feel. They're going to be testing the block, maybe with cold or maybe um, by using a little um, pen prick. Um, And they're going to put more medication in and they may try to position you in order to get the medication to kind of flow to where you don't, where where it currently isn't working that well. Um, so those are the, some of the things to try and troubleshoot the epidural. The, one of the most important things about getting an epidural to work well is if you want to use that epidural down the line because um, this lady goes on to need um, a C-section, then if the epidural was patchy or it never really did work properly, then trying to top that epidural up for um, a C-section is going to be very difficult. And that means you may then not have enough time to do that, um, which means that you would be more at risk of eventually having to go towards a general anesthetic. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So 
if someone is patchy, they're only one-sided, speak up. Don't just come yeah, like, well, absolutely. I can kind yeah, of Or just be like, oh, it seems all right, it. and it's so much better than it was. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. Because if you're going to take the medication, use it for what it's there for, and then mm-hmm. have it in place. Yeah. Should you need to take, you know, go to a cesarean section. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about someone that hasn't had any sort of pain medication and then needs a cesarean how how quickly can an epidural or do they go for a spinal at that point okay so that's very patient dependent and it's probably um there are probably protocols within each hospital that uh so in a, in a general way um a woman having her first c-section if she's had no previous intra-abdominal surgery you're not going to, the, the um, obstetricians are not going to anticipate that that surgery is going to be difficult. It should be relatively quick. A second, third, fourth, etc. cesarean section n- takes longer because there are what we call adhesions inside the abdomen from the previous surgery. And so there's a much higher chance that the surgery will take longer. Not necessarily the part where the baby is getting out, but but um, sewing up afterwards and making sure that everything's back in place. So in that instance, when you give a spinal injection, so if you just inject medication into the spinal space, there's a finite period of time that you're going to get the block from that spinal. Um, So in that case, the anesthesiologist may place a CSE, so they may do the spinal to cover the cesarean section and have the epidural there in case they need to extend the block for a period of time or they, if they have the time and it's their choice and it's in their practice, they may just put an epidural in for the C-section. But it's most likely if you had never had any medication before that the anesthesiologist is going to want to place some kind of spinal block, be that just the spinal block or be that the spinal block with the epidural. Okay. No, that's good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've, again, these are all, I'm just trying to think about where the community by my thinking. And since I yeah. have you on the line. <laughs> and then the, the other thing that I think is really important to know about spinal block in cesarean is that spinal block covers um, pain and it covers touch, but it does not cover pressure. So yes, the, this is kind of everyone's go-to phrase, which is you're going to feel like someone's doing the washing up inside your stomach because <laughs> you feel the pressure and especially they put a lot of pressure at the top of the uterus so right um kind of just below your sternum when they're when they're pressing for the baby to kind of to get the baby out of the uterus when they're doing the c-section and you would definitely you know you'll be warned that that's going to happen but i want i want your listeners to know that you you feel a sense of pressure and even Although you should you know, never feel even, pain. And even not in a cesarean, but just even regular, you know, a vaginal birth, someone's trying to go for. I've had clients tell me when they're feeling that, you know, they're not feeling the intensity of the contraction, but they'll say like, I feel like I have to poop or I feel like pressure. Yeah. I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's because exact, you still feel that pressure. You still feel that pressure, which is which is good. We need to have that some, you know, biofeedback. So let's go to um the pros and cons. Okay. Um so I'm going to talk a little bit about the risks. Um, I, I feel like the pros are pretty um, – the pros are that, that you can get incredible pain relief. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and also, you know, there is this incidence, we talked about this um, in the TT, about, um, you know, mothers who are exhausted um, and they're very tense. And so maybe, especially at the end of a very long labor, or if for whatever reason the mother is really struggling to find a way to release the in the pelvic floor, you know, perhaps she has some previous reason for, for struggling to create that kind of opening, um, then just having the epidural can actually help the labor to progress in that way. So, you know, a really good team is going to know when that's appropriate and is maybe going to advise that. You probably see that. I've seen that work. a lot. And yeah. the interesting things is um, the two particular births I keep going back to that I've witnessed, they were particularly determined, very fit women. And yeah. it was it was this moment where the team saw it was the next, the necessary step, but we had mm-hmm. also really worked hard not to have to go to that step. And yeah. so it was, it was a bit of a surrender and a bit of a mourning, but because mm. the labors were so long and the two births and think in particular, the moms just seemed almost beaten down. And one in particular, she could barely, she could barely move. We, you know, I had her laboring, um, on the floor on, you know, that she was doing these great squats, but it got to the point when the contraction started and she had to get moving, she could barely do it. And so we, we had a chat about it and about, she still had to push the baby out. We haven't even gotten to that point. And Mm -hmm. when both of them finally sort of came to it, it created a relaxation because everything was so tight from Mm -hmm. the waves of the contraction. There's pain and there's suffering and Mm -hmm. they had passed to the suffering, almost like the waves of the contractions were like beating them down. And, and when they did get it, it relaxed the pelvic floor enough that they both dilated and they both were able to have a vaginal birth. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's about, you know, the idea is like for many, this is what I'm going to do, but we don't really know what it's going to be like. And Mm -hmm. using an epidural for how it can assist and help is valid because sometimes I think we demonize in our minds, you know, like what we don't want. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It really does have its place for sure. Um, so in terms of, I feel like, so we talk, we probably talk a lot about the benefits, um, but in terms of the risks, um, so you you you've had this pod, the podcast with Sarah Buckley and talked a lot about the kind of orchestration of all the hormones in labor and the so the epidural and blocking out the pain is going to interfere with that cascade of natural hormones that are occurring during labor. And so one of the effects of that is that you're more likely to need to have your labor augmented with pitocin. Um, which then comes with its own um, set of knock-on effects. Um, So in particular, the evidence shows that the second stage, so the pushing stage of labor, is slowed down by having an epidural in place, and it therefore increases the risk of needing an instrumental delivery. So an instrumental delivery is the use of forceps, less common in the U.S., or use of a vacuum. Um, And with that comes an increased risk of perineal tearing um, and the increased risks to the baby of of being instrumented as the baby is delivered. And actually, I wanted you to maybe talk as well a little bit about laboring down, because that's not something that's necessarily kind of um, 
part of an anesthesiologist's <laughs> but as part of you now you know because you're I mean. it is because you're this certified. Is really interesting to me you know like actually so the difference between saying oh there's an epidural and just like giving the, the mother the same amount of the t- time to to get that baby to come down versus being patient and having the baby sure let's let's go laboring down so um ACOG also came out was it last year or two years ago, with new guidelines for the expected stages of labor. And what it did show and what they're now recommending is giving more time and space for people that take an epidural for this, mm-hmm. specifically the second stage. Um, they're showing, research is showing, it, as you mentioned, it does take longer. And what the, a little bit of the fight going on right now is certain hospitals have protocols of you have three hours. Now, hopefully it doesn't take three hours, but sometimes it may. And our research yeah. is saying that, hey, if someone has pain medication, let's let's honor that. So that's the whole schedule situation. But what labor laboring down means, if you are having the pain medication, we talked about if you're having it, use it. You know, it's there for a reason. It's there to give you that break from the contractions, but your uterus will continue to work. So the oxytocin or the pitocin, depending on what the situation is, will continue to contract the uterus. And the way what happens is when the uterus contracts, it actually retracts, it kind of pulls up to the top, it gets thicker at the top and like a plunger, it pushes the baby down. So if you can visualize Mm -hmm. that strong muscle pushing baby down, and that's going to continue to either dilate or to, if you're fully dilated, to continue to push the baby down through the birth canal. So if someone has the pain relief, but the baby is still high up a station where the head's in relation to the ischial spines, instead of starting to push, which is for a lot, a lot of energy and mm-hmm. getting on the clock, then we remind the, the birthing person that she had her body still working. So use the natural function of the uterus to continue to push baby down until baby's pretty low, where I mentioned my client that's like, I feel I have to poop. That wasn't a yeah. bowel movement. That was the head pressing against the rectum, which means that baby was really nice and low. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea of laboring down, that the body's going to continue to try to expel the baby out. So why put the effort in? Why put yourself on the schedule of the, of the hospital or birth center when you don't need to? So that's yeah. basically laboring down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I, I just, I think that's really important, just really understanding waiting for the kind of that physiological process to occur and knowing that it may take a little longer and not using that kind of coached, not assuming that just because you're at 10 centimeters now is the time to start that coached pushing um, kind of phase. Because someone might end up starting to push with the baby high up just because they're 10 centimeters. And Mm -hmm. then it might start to be not only against the clock, but they might start to run into, besides exhaustion, oh, baby's too big or, you know, I, I don't think it's going to fit. So, you know, wait until that baby's really far down. Because if you have the medication, you're just having the pain relief, there's no reason, unless there is a medical reason, unless, you know, I've seen people yes. say like, all right, baby's heart rate's starting to look a little sketchy. Let's try to push this baby out. But yeah. if it's, if baby's heart rate's great, mom's blood pressure's great, and it's just a matter of your 10 centimeters, let's go for it. There isn't really a medical reason to start to go that early. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So our other um, risks and side effects. So the one of the big ones is that the um, the mama's blood pressure can be um, lowered by having the epidural. So this is the reason for putting the IV drip up and loading with fluids um, before the epidural starts. Um, and then, of course, it makes sense that when the blood pressure to the mum drops, the pressure to the baby drops as well. So there's an there's no evidence that the epidural increases the risk of cesarean section, but there is an increased number of cesarean sections for fetal distress. So fetal distress is when the heart rate of the baby is now not no longer reassuring, and that is often because the blood flow to the baby has been restricted. So this is where the association begins to occur. If mother's blood pressures come down, the, blood, the pressure through the placenta comes down, baby's heart rate um, you know, is no longer reassuring. And then we're in a situation where we're now rushing to a cesarean section. There's just an increased risk of that happening. Managing blood pressure with, with an epidural is, um, is something that an anesthesiologist does every day. So they're going to use fluids and they may use some other medications to help to bring the blood pressure up. Um, so just so mamas know, if that happens, then the mum's going to be put on her left side. She may be given some oxygen until the blood pressure comes back up. Um, and then the likelihood is that everything would just continue as long as the baby's fine as, as it was before. Um, so the other risks that can occur commonly are feeling sick and being sick. Um, some of that is related, can be related to the blood pressure drop, and some of it can be related to the um, narcotics or the opioids in the medication. Um, so epidurals also interfere with the temperature regulation in the mother. So there is an incidence of the mother having a fever during her labor if she has the epidural placed. And that's not to do with the epidural creating an infection. It's just uh, an effect of the epidural analgesia. And the knock-on effect of that is that now you've got a mother with a fever who has an epidural, but how do you know for sure where that fever is coming from? You don't know for sure. And so babies born to mothers who had a fever are more likely to end up having what's called a septic workup or a septic screen once they're born. And the issues associated with that are the fact that your baby's going to be separated from you. They're going to have some invasive, um, you know, they're going to have bloods drawn. You know, it may go as far as them having to have a spinal tap, etc. In terms of trying to work out whether that baby um, does indeed have an have an infection. So it just this this epidural fever kind of just clouds the picture a little bit. Um, the other thing that opioids do is that they can cause itching in the mother, which can be, for some mothers, can be really distressing, just this kind of um, all over feeling of itchiness or especially on the belly. Again, we have medications which can help with that, but can't always completely remove that sensation of itching. And the other thing that the medications can do is cause shivering. So this is especially true for a mother with a block in um, at cesarean section. So there's an incidence of um, mothers shivering after they've delivered anyway. It's just this kind of, the, that kind of massive release of adrenaline, but it can be prolonged if you have the block. And again, we have some medications which we can use to try and help with that. But um, to your listeners who, who 
kind of haven't delivered probably feel like, well, shivering, how bad can it be? Oh my, it's but like it's shaking. pretty, it's intense. <laughs> it's like yeah. your biggest teeth chattering, like the whole body is kind of in it that shiver. Yeah, it's bit. almost convulsive. Yeah. yeah. And it's really, you know, people describe it being kind of really distressing for them. Um, so that's shivering. And then sore back is a big one. So for the 24 to 48 hours after the epidural was done, you know, when you're in your recovery period, where the epidural went in can be sore, especially if for whatever reason it's taken a few attempts to get that epidural to go in. In terms of long-term backache, back pain later on, there's no evidence that having an epidural increases your risk of back pain, but back pain is something that happens to people after they have been through pregnancy and delivered their children. But right now there's no direct association in the evidence from having the epidural. One of the things, though, to be careful of is when you don't have the sen- when you don't have sensation in your legs and you don't have that sensation in your lower body, you don't have the protective mechanisms that you'd normally do to keep yourself from creating um, damage in your joints, essentially. So just being really careful of what people are doing with your legs, especially if they're lifting your legs up when you're birthing your baby. Um, I know you talk about this as well so just yeah the pub- the poor pubic bone <laughs> or the yeah. pubic separation I've mm-hmm. had a lot of students come back and you know if they were in more the traditional on the back and their legs you know knees all of a sudden to their armpit and they're not naturally that flexible yes. if you think about you know the pubic yeah. bone isn't solid in the front this cartilage and we also know that during birth the relaxin is really surging and that's softening these tendons lig- ligaments and space or the cartilage and it can get pulled and then there's a lot of pain yeah. on the pubic bone. Yeah. And, and so I've had people of... come back saying they broke their tailbone. Yeah. Yeah. So you gotta be really mindful of how you handle your body mm-hmm. or how someone else handles or your how body. Many, how somebody else is handling you. Yeah. And that's a great thing to kind of prep your partner up beforehand, I think, or if you have, you know, if you have a doula with you, they're going to help to keep you, um, you know, to keep you good in that respect. Okay. So less commonly, so we're coming on to some, some things which, uh, you know, may not be discussed with you because their risks are less, but I feel like it's important to know ahead of time. Um, so spinal headache occurs in one in a hundred epidurals and one in 500 spinal injections. These, you know, un, um, institution to institution, these numbers are going to vary, but this is the ballpark figures. And this headache is caused by basically a leak of the cerebrospinal fluid out of the spinal space, which means that there's kind of this less buoyancy for the brain. And so you get a really significant headache. Um, Women don't like the light at all. And it's very, I mean, it's severe and it can really, really interfere with your ability to take care of your baby it'd be un- very unlikely that the hospital would have you go home with a with a spinal headache without um, treating it for you. So I think that's important to know. It's a, it's a pretty significant side effect if that happens to you. And then very, more rarely would be nerve damage. So there can be temporary nerve damage. So this would be a patch, maybe a patch of skin where you didn't have any sensation or um, maybe a weakness, a residual weakness. And temporarily that happens in one in a thousand epidurals and more something that would be more permanent in one in 13,000. So these things are, very, are rare. 
And then moving on, things that are very rare would be an infection caused by the epidural. So that's from the from just from introducing something into the body. So epidural abscess or meningitis or you accidentally being rendered unconscious by the epidural are all very rare. So less than one in 100,000. And then severe injury, including the risk of paralysis, are extremely rare, so less than one in 250,000. And so most anesthesiologists would go their whole career without that occurring. Um, But clearly you're working in a space where there's a very small chance that that could occur. Yeah, very delicate space. Yeah. And then just kind of shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about this kind of psychosocial effect of taking on the epidural. So a lot of women say, um, you know, the focus was all on me. It was all about me. People were asking me like how I was feeling, what was happening in my body. And then I had the epidural and I had all the machines connected to me. And then people would come in the room and all they do is look at the machine and they look at the monitor and they look at how much of the epidural infusion has gone in. My partner's gone to sleep or he's or he or she has left the room um, because I'm no longer, I no longer appear to need that intense support. And just this real kind of feeling of isolation. And I think it's really important for people to think about that in advance and especially for partners and whoever's supporting you in your birth to know that just because you have that pain relief, it doesn't mean that you now don't need support. Um, and there's always an instant, you know, like, especially if the labor has been long, you know, the partner needs to sleep, the mom needs to sleep, but just kind of thinking about that a little bit in advance, I think is helpful. And also you touched on the idea about still moving mom from side to side. So yeah. we mentioned that with the epidural, the the muscles relax. And mm-hmm. in some cases, that's great. You know, in some cases where mom is so tight, we need that pelvic floor to relax. On the other side, if the pelvic floor can relax and take a baby that was well positioned and start to make it malpositioned. So the partner still needs to be aware of how to support the mom. We're going to move her from side to side pretty yeah. often. We're going mm-hmm. to try to angle her knee down to keep space in the pelvic outlet. So just because you're, you're totally right. And I'm so glad you said this, just because she doesn't appear to need yeah. support, she's still birthing a baby. So we need yeah, to still absolutely. be absolutely. mindful that I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's yeah. huge. And I think there's a big difference between, so there's a big difference between being satisfied with the kind of birth that you had and having pain relief. So just because your birth, just because your pain was relieved, it doesn't necessarily equate with having a positive birth experience. So this idea that women then describe this feeling of, uh, you know, a lack of autonomy, you know, a lack of being able to do thing, do their birth kind of for themselves um, is significant. And so you know, just because you had pain during your birth, it doesn't necessarily mean that you come out at the end of your birth saying that was a negative experience. <clears throat> In fact, many women say, <clears throat> you know, that they felt very empowered by moving through their birth in that way. And equally, you know, women say, well, you know, it was great for me that I had my epidural and and I was able to get it when I wanted it. And, and that works out. I just want to separate the two things, pain relief and having a positive birth experience are not necessarily one and the same. Thing. Yeah, as we mentioned, pain and suffering. You can yeah. suffer without pain, mm-hmm. and you can, you know, be in pain without suffering. But you, you just yeah. said something I want to jump on about. About when get like about when someone gets an epidural. 
one thing I have students ask me all the time, is it ever too late to get an epidural? Yeah, okay, this is a good one. So the answer really is no. It should never be too late to get an epidural unless your baby is actually being born. <laughs> That's what I was so saying. If, if, if the there. baby is literally, the head is coming out, it's too late. <laughs> um so there's, there's, there's kind of the two extremes to this, right? It used to, we, they used to say, you know, you, you weren't allowed an epidural before in some units before you were a certain number of centimeters. But actually, this would be a good thing to find out from your provider, um, you know, like if they actually have rules like that. But for the most part, as long as you are actually established in your labor, um, then you should be allowed to have your epidural whenever you choose to have it. Um, and then at the other end, so the, uh, something that commonly kind of happens in anesthesiologist practices that a lady says she wants to have an epidural and then she has to be sat up to have the epidural in order to bend her back over you know and just bring in that movement if she hasn't already been using movement often then creates the situation where baby begins to move down and then suddenly baby's crowning and you know but we're trying to put the white the <laughs> fluid on the back or something and the, you know it's time to go i say it commonly happens it doesn't commonly happen but it does happen but someone um, has to stay still during yeah that. and they have to stay still yeah which yeah. i mean if you're in transition that's not so easy to stay yeah. still yeah absolutely so yeah i think that's another important thing to know is that you have to stay still and a good anesthesiologist will help you by timing when they are moving the needle in the back with your contractions but so that you can have a, t- a bit of movement, but no, we're not talking about like being able to like you're not like really swinging move your around. Hips you're no around. Swing, yeah, no swing around and <laughs> no yeah. getting on your ball. <laughs> yeah, and in the UK we use um, in the sorry in the UK we use uh, you know a lot of mothers use gas and air, so they're able to use their gas and air whilst um, you know whilst you're citing the epidural for the contractions as you go along. So Good. That's Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to go for a big controversial question. Are you ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have heard conflicting information about this. So let me know what you've researched. Is there yeah. any effect on a baby whose mother had an epidural? Okay. So you're right. This is big. It's controversial. <laughs> um, We're getting crazy uh, here today. <laughs> so let me let me kind of split that into two parts. So the first thing is the effects on the baby as a result of the effects on the mother. So we already talked about the increased risk of having an instrumental delivery. So clearly there's going to be an effect on the baby of being delivered by a vacuum or by a forceps. The baby's going to be at more risk um, when they're delivered that way. Um, other things like the reduced blood pressure in the mother having having an effect on the baby. Um, so the other side of it is, are the medications that are being given to the mother in some way being absorbed by the baby and having any kind of an effect on the baby? So what, it's important to understand that we're talking about very small quantities because we're putting it into the spinal space and then it's getting absorbed into the bloodstream and then it's going to baby. But remembering that the baby doesn't have as much capacity to clear medication as the mother does just because they're smaller and their clearance systems are more immature. So right now there is no research that can tell us that um, – that that those medications have an effect on the baby. But if you, um, there's kind of 
people are beginning to talk about, um, and especially in Sarah Buckley's work, about maybe there being some neurobehavioral effects. But it's so hard to pick these things out because so often the mother with the epidural also has Pitocin. So the baby for sure we know was going to have a high level of Pitocin in its body if the mother has had Pitocin during her um delivery during her birth and delivery um and so picking that out from the you know very small amount of uh, medications that have come from the epidural is is tricky and it's research really that needs to be done so the answer is we don't know we don't know exactly (laughs) and so if somebody says to you there's no effect that's not really i mean really the truth is we don't know you're absolutely right Mm-hmm. But there is kind of a trickle-down effect is what you're saying. Yeah, there's a trickle-down effect. And and so the uh, well, trickle-down effect makes me think of that cascade of interventions. Yeah. yeah, which I definitely wanted to say. So we've already kind of really covered this, but this idea that when you choose to have your epidural, there are all these other things that go with it. It's not just one thing. It's like a package. And each of those things has its own um has its own knock-on effect. So it's not stand. So, so stand alone, we don't know if the epidural has effect, but we do know that there's a higher chance of instrumental. We know there's a there's more likely than not pitocin. Yes. And as you were saying, what the mom's body metabolizes, the baby's body does in some effect. So, yeah, it's uh, that's a, that's kind of what I want to highlight is that again, it's it's when someone when an individual chooses it's just having the bigger picture because as we yeah. started off saying it's so commonplace that we might not think about what's the whole picture it's just oh mm-hmm. you know i'm going to get an epidural and again yeah. it's valid it's just of, we need to know the whole thing yeah and in terms of that hormonal cascade that natural hormonal cascade that occurs like so we're interfering with that so there isn't any concrete evidence, but people are kind of um, hypothesizing about um, infant mother bonding. Um, and, and mostly that's investigated through um, ease of breastfeeding. And then he, I remember that you were telling me about that, um, you know, the more fluids that you have when you're in labor, about that incident, the incidence of the connection between that and the difficulty with breastfeeding just because of the change in the, the breasts from, yeah. yeah By day like three or fluids. four, the fluid, like the actual breasts and the nipple themselves, it's harder for the baby to latch. You'll pass. Yeah. But that can, that can be an obstacle for some people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This was so rich. I'm loving it. I was going to ask you a little bit about the UK and your birth. We're starting to run out of time, but so let's start to wrap it up. Do you have any final tips for the pregnant person or new parent? Because you've had two babies uh-huh. and you know, you've, birthed in different cultures you've studied medicine you've practiced medicine what are your final tips um okay so i would say to gather yourself as much information as you can to prepare for your birth and also to prepare for that postnatal period in the same way that you maybe prepare for your baby shower or you know i feel like we put a lot of emphasis on those kinds of things and and maybe we don't maybe we just assume that we'll go into hospital and this is a time when you really have choices and you really should have choices and so you want to be able to make those choices for yourself having thought about the information beforehand like that space when you get into the hospital is not the time 
to suddenly start to try to assimilate information. You want to try to really be in, you know, really bring your gaze inwards and really focus on what's happening with your body, not trying to make a kind of executive, a lot of executive decision making. Well, the brain so shouldn't say, be there at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. We so I monkey brain. That. Yeah. And then definitely to choose your provider well. So work it out, work it out what it is that you want and then find somebody who is aligned with your, um, with your plan or with your kind of hopes for how you would like your birth to be. And then lastly, I would say to trust your body, really to trust the process um, and to know that all of these, you know, it's incredible that we have um, the support of medicine um, to help us out. But for most part, um, especially, you know, in low risk women, um, you can really, you really can trust yourself and you really can trust your baby in the, in that birthing process. Those are such good tips. And Mm -hmm. I am so thrilled and honored to have spoken with you about this. I think it's a topic that it's just not fully explored and you did it beautifully. And, and I'm so glad you're a part of our teacher training. And I can tell you this, this podcast will make its way into our next teacher training. So (laughs) your wisdom will continue to live on. It's the big circle of life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks so much, Deb. This was so fun. Oh, wonderful. Enjoy your day. I will too. Take care. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.